Greetings, and welcome to another installment of the Padverb Podcast. I am your host, KMO. And in this episode of the podcast, I'm going to share a conversation that I recorded just a few days ago with fellow OG podcaster Douglas Lane. I started podcasting in October of 2006, definitely one of the earlier podcasters. And Doug, as you'll hear him say in the interview, it's more of a conversation than an interview, really. But as you'll hear him say, uh, he basically got started in podcasting after listening to my podcast and realizing that you can create something that sounds pretty professional, pretty respectable, with consumer-grade equipment, even budget-level consumer-grade equipment, and no high-speed internet access. Uh, Because in the early days of my podcast, I didn't have internet access at home. I mean, I had a janky dial-up connection. I could check my email, but I certainly couldn't record a Skype call. So to record my Skype conversations, I would jump in my old Ford Ranger pickup truck And I would drive into Bentonville, Arkansas, and I would find public Wi-Fi someplace, uh, often at the Panera Bread Company. And many times I wouldn't even go inside. I mean, if it was really crowded inside and it was going to be a noisy environment in which to record, I would sit in my truck. But, you know, I would get get on their Wi-Fi and do Skype interviews on my laptop computer in my truck in Bentonville, Arkansas. And it was listening to some of those conversations that convinced Doug Lane that uh, podcasting was a thing. So... He's been doing it, I mean, he started a couple years after I did, but, you know, by now, he's been doing it for over a decade. So, here's my conversation with Douglas Lane. You are listening to the Padverb Podcast. I am your host, KMO, and I am joined by veteran OG podcaster and a man who wears many other hats, Douglas Lane of Sublation Media. Doug, it's good to see you again. Yeah, it's good to see you. Uh, long time no see, I think, really. Uh, I haven't been on your podcast. You haven't been on mine for probably a, a year or two, I think. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, the AI knows, but we don't. Yeah, the AI um, knows. So we are talking about the evolution of podcasting, and this is our second attempt to record this conversation. So the stuff we said about decentralization, that's all just in the Akashic record. Oh, yeah. Let's, 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 <laughs> let's talk about decentralization, because I'm sort of talking with that in, the, in my mind already. Mm-hmm. Also, it's very inside baseball, just talking about, like, I use this program, and this is, you know. But uh, yeah. the point of it all, I guess, is you had said that the, this pad verb podcast mm-hmm. that's, that's is what we're on. about that's what we're on <laughs> we're on padverb which by the way i just want to say off to the side i looked up padverb and i think i'm going to sign up as a host oh you uh, should and and i also i have a lot of authors who could be guests so i might try to sign them up as well because i yeah. feel like this was something when we started podcasting would have been probably a blessing i think we would have used it to book guests because you have to you've got that content mill you're you're on but the the point is padverb is about decentralization and yet it is centralizing the process <laughs> <Yeah>. of getting <laughs> which is helpful <laughs> yeah it is helpful <laughs> um but it's about how the internet has decentralized the media um and and it's and you know what i think i said it in the other part of the conversation was that it's it's a strange decentralization because when we started and podcasting which sounds like it was we weren't even the first to start we were kind of i felt we were late to the game or i was late anyway. <laughs> but, but um back in the day it was decentralized in so much as uh there were everybody and their brother had a podcast um but they all sounded like crap and uh nobody knew about them and 
there was one central place to get them, which was iTunes, but yep. there wasn't a lot of other centralized, uh, you know, there was nothing like Padverb out there, and there was no particular path for a podcaster to follow. Um, so we just had to, like, find people's emails to invite them on, or um, oh, I guess we created little networks. It's not exactly centralized networks, but, you know, like, you would have someone on, and then I would ask you for their mm-hmm. email because yeah. I wanted to talk to them too. Oh, I remember some gems. <laughs> yeah, there were there was one or two times. I think there were two times where it almost destroyed our friendship that I had interviewed people. That you had interviewed. I'm sure they've forgotten by now, and that's all water under the bridge for them. You started out as a podcaster. Mm-hmm. I mean, you started out, you know, as a working schmo. I was writing short fiction before I did. Yeah, you were an podcasting. author. Mm-hmm. You, you were you were a writer, you were a fiction author, and you also were a zine publisher. But then the podcast picked up, you know, and uh, over time, well, I, I guess, let me not tell it for you. You tell the story of how the Diet Soap podcast turned into the Zero Books podcast. Okay. Well, what happened was I interviewed a guy named David Blacker, who is was an author for Zero Books. Um, he, he is an He's a philosopher, or philosophy philosophy professor, and a philosopher, and he'd written a a, a a book for zero books. I think, if I remember correctly, he contacted me to come on. Maybe not, I, but in any case, like he was listening to you, and he was listening to me, and he was listening to a, a number of other podcasts that were kind of in our orbit, and he came on as a guest. And he came on a couple of times and we became friendly and he was a friend of yours. And, um, that's weird. Then, Cause I thought I knew him through you, but <laughs> well, that's probably right. I mean, that's probably right. You did know him through me, but I think he also listened to you is all. And you met him in person. Like I've oh, never met him in person. I, I stayed at his house and uh, we kept his family awake all night because we were drinking whiskey and loud late into the evening. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. He, he's now I, I, divorced from that woman. Yeah, I know. He's, I was just going to say that was part of the beginning of the end of that marriage. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> uh uh, anyhow, he, he had he authored a book for Zero Books, so he was in the loop when the, the team of people who were running the Zero Books imprint, which is a, an imprint for a company called John Hunt Publishing in the UK, when they left, uh, he let me know. And the Zero Books, the imprint, is a left-wing philosophical culture imprint. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of critical theory would be one way of saying it, but these days that kind of gives the wrong impression. And I have been doing a podcast that developed into a Marxist-oriented podcast, but like kind of organically, I started out just wanting to understand what was going on with the economic crisis. That was one of the motivations behind Diet Soap in, in the early days. I was interviewing, along with psychedelic weirdos, I was interviewing economists and of various stripes. So I had become more interested in Marxism and, and trying to understand the way the system of capitalism itself uh, goes into crisis. And that's how David Blacker found me, I think. And when Zero Books became vacated, when the people who were working there as the editors decided to quit because they didn't get along with the owner, um, he said, hey, you should put in your resume for the job. And I did with his recommendation. And I was their second choice. The first guy who got the job quit after two days wow. because, <laughs> because he was 
living in the UK, I think it was part of the London scene that the original editors were part of. And when they found out he had taken the job, they harassed him mercilessly. And so, uh, but I was an American and outside their milieu. So I took the job. They had no way really of pressuring me for anyone. I, you know, it gave me an opportunity to quit my telemarketing gig. So um, that's how uh, Diet Soap, the podcast, became the Zero Squared podcast, the podcast for Zero Books. I was hired on, you know, as a basically gig economy, uh, self-employed worker for this British company. Um, and I said, look, part of the deal is you pay me for the time I create these podcasts and I'll promote the imprint. And we did well. I was there for six years. And then the people who had left the, the company uh, uh, got it together with uh, their new publisher to buy the, the entirety of John Hunt Publishing. Ah, I didn't know that part of it. Yeah. So Watkins Media, which owned Repeater Books, which was an imprint that the old Zero Books crew founded after they left, uh, bought John Hunt Publishing. They bought it slowly. They actually had earned, uh, owned about 30% of the company for a few, a few years bef- before they bought the entirety of it. So I could see it coming. But they, when they bought the whole thing, I was told that I was no longer the publishing manager or that I should stop doing the job of the publishing manager is how they put it. And uh, then there were some... Yeah. Anyway, so I left. There was a, there were some <laughs> there were there were some uh, legal entanglements that almost happened. There were lawyers were involved. I I spent money to try to protect a property that I didn't end up winning. Well, over the six years that you were working for Zero Books, yeah, and uh, Zero around, books. yeah, enough of that part of the story. Yeah. Although that, I tell you, that's the part I'm obsessed over. Of course. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. Over that six years, how did your media production change? Well, I started doing a YouTube channel. Um, a couple years in, but for, first of all, one of the things I had to do when I started working at Zero Books was stop thinking of myself as an employee of Zero Books when I was on the podcast. Like I've been doing a podcast as an independent podcaster, talking to people who I wanted to talk to, interviewing them the way I wanted to interview them. And then I started working for Zero Books and I was interviewing authors that had someone else had decided to publish at first. And I was throwing them softball questions to try to promote the books in this way that didn't read right. And I lost a lot of listeners when I first started. And I had to go, no, 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 Doug. Ask some hard questions. Don't only talk to Zero Books authors. Um, and and you know, kind of go back to what you were doing before. And I did that, and it, it started growing. But then... Um, I started, uh, well, then Trump got elected. <laughs> <laughs> and everything on the left just exploded. So then, like, the podcast grew in the, you know, in the matter of a few months. And um, then the YouTube channel started because of that, too. And the YouTube channel did well um, also. And so, like, that's when Trump was a godsend to the this Marxist <laughs> Uh, how ironic <laughs> imprint yeah well the, <laughs> yeah. that the the anti-capitalist left just got a, a huge boon from you know this and we are all suffering under biden like yeah. all of our numbers oh, are sure. down i'm sure yeah mm-hmm. yeah so then things with the uh, zero books kind of went away and you had to reinvent yourself and basically replace the income that you were getting right 
Yeah, and so I did that pretty much immediately and just told the people who had been, because I started a Patreon to fund the marketing efforts of Zero Books. In other words, it actually paid my salary um, and a few and another couple people. It was like, you know, the other people weren't making a, a real salary. But um, so we had a Patreon going that meant that the work I did for the imprint was I was paying for myself. And when I left, I just told the people who were following me on Patreon that I was starting another Patreon and that they wanted to continue to get my podcast and the videos I was making, they should come over and support me over there. And about two thirds of them did or three quarters of them did. And then, and then the rest for the most part, they just quit. I mean, the, the, that Patreon got emptied out. Um, so that's how I continued to have an income. Um, and then I, because of the work I'd done in zero books, a few people approached me saying, Hey, we want you to keep publishing books. We want you to still be a voice on the left. Uh, so I got some investor money. Um, so are, are these uh, sources that you can identify or would they rather remain anonymous? Um, I can tell you, I mean, I don't know. I mean, they're, they're not, um, yeah. I mean, one of them is a guy who lives in Florida named John Milton Bunch. Reverend Doctor John okay. Milton Punch is his character on YouTube, um, and then there are a couple of others as well. Uh, but uh, so, the, who I think would prefer not to be public because they're actually, but yeah, every uh, yeah, they were all impressed with what had happened in Zero, liked the direction that it was going, and wanted to fund the effort to continue. So we have a media company now called Sublation Media. We've got a Twitch channel. We've got a YouTube channel. We've got a TikTok channel, which we're not using wow. yet. We've got, uh, of course, Sub Twitter and Facebook and Substack? a podcast. No, I wanted to. We have a magazine, an online okay. magazine called Sublation Magazine, and I wanted to do it as a Substack because I thought, oh, that will actually generate revenue. Instead, we've created our own independent magazine, and it costs us money instead of making us money. But um, it's. Uh, we but we're more in control of it and and um it it's more of it's a real independent entity um but i don't know i think substack is a really interesting place and i you know i would like to if i uh if i were to go off on my own as a freelance freelancer i think i would start a substack from just myself but as a part of the media company we didn't do that we ended up not doing that well, you and I both started podcasting before podcasting was a turnkey industry with all of these support mechanisms and st structures in place to, to support you. Right. Uh, so my website is a total mess, and it's a mess because it was built by lots of different people over several different years, and it was all approximating off-the-shelf stuff now that you can get for free pretty much. Mm -hmm. uh, and yes, I still have some subscribers on PayPal. Um, mm -hmm. Which, you know, it's, I can't, I won't let anybody new subscribe that way because it, it's a lot of work on the back end for me. Whereas Patreon does, um, you know, it streamlines things, it, it lets me scale more easily. But with PayPal or with Patreon, there's always the danger that you're going to get cut off if you say the wrong thing. And a lot of people mm. hear it and complain, uh, even if you're not even, even if what you said isn't on their platform. Like uh, Sargon of Akkad, something that he said on somebody else's podcast made Patreon drop him. Oh, yeah. really? When was that? That's a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, 
Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm always a little bit nervous about putting all of my, uh, you know, my eggs in that basket. No, I understand. Well, I'll tell you, I think I remember when Sargon was dropped. It was a while back. And I remember not being that upset about it at the time, even though I, I didn't think it was right. But I, it didn't, I didn't have the, the sort of feeling of doom or foreboding uh, when it happened. And I should have. Because cause Sargon was sort of, I, I thought of him as sort of a chump. I mean, I, 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 you know, I was a leftist, so I had to. It was mandatory that I think that way. <laughs> Um, right, but you can also think of him as an independent content creator. Oh no! Right, exactly. And now, now that I'm actually on Patreon, and because I mean, now, now it's gotten to the point where if you have the wrong opinions, political opinions, um, you can be dropped. Yep. Or you can be censored. Uh, you know, and it's it used to be like, oh, if you said something that was almost the equivalent of hate speech, you know, you could you could get dropped but now it's like if you just have the wrong position right on the war in ukraine specifically doesn't matter how you articulate it how careful you are with your wording it's the point of view that is forbidden right yeah well i mean i'm sorry but i mean call me gen x or you know boomer or whatever (laughs) but um you're not a boomer you're younger than me (laughs) i know but but I mean, it's an old-fashioned mentality, I know, but um, I thought we were living in a country protected by a Bill of Rights, and we had the free, uh, the right to a free expression. And oh, you do sound like a boomer, man. I know, <laughs> I know. I mean, but I mean, specifically in order to protect our uh, politics, our ability to organize and think politically, to have some say in a democracy, you can't have a a, a democratic. You know, this is why decentralization is important. Not to you know, be too on point with your podcast manifesto, but it is important. Why? That's why it's that you know you have a multiple platforms, multiple places to go. So just one corporation can't decide. Okay, this is this is too far. Although the trouble is, if do you do you watch Glenn Greenwald? Do you follow his stuff? I um I don't follow his stuff religiously, but I used to watch, I used to see him a lot when he was on Rising before Crystal and Sagar broke off to go do Breaking Point. So I'm, yeah. I'm pretty familiar, you know, with who he is and why he is absolutely hated by the left. Yeah, I don't hate him at all. But well, um... by, the, by the sort of left that, you know, has no problem, the sort of left who rolls their eyes when they hear freedom of speech and First Amendment and... Mm. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Glenn Greenwald was pointing out the, uh, in a in a podcast that he did a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago, that even though it, it the censorship online is coming from uh, you know private companies, the reality is that these companies are acting at the request of the state, and that that isn't even hidden. Um, because politicians will make direct threats to the CEOs of these co- these corporations, like Alexander uh, uh, Ocasio Cortez, was like, "When is Facebook going to do something about misinformation?" Especially around January six. When is how how is Facebook still getting these sweetheart deals when they're allowing the wrong idea you know wrong ideas to be posted? It's like okay, well, so that's <laughs> that's a direct, you know, basically an order from uh, you know politician in the state to censure. So that is state censorship. 
You know, that that is a violation of uh, the uh, First Amendment. Um, yeah, you, you keep referencing this 200 year old document. You know, that's that's yesterday's news, man. Why? Yeah. Well, why I, why are you right. clinging to that? <laughs> you should just listen to your enlightened representatives and, and do what they tell you is good for you. Yeah. Well, I understand that, the, you know, these these rights we have have, have also been decentralized. So, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and fragmented. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> Let me ask you. I mean, do you put any of the video up on StreamYard? Here's what I, I do. Mean, on, on YouTube? Um, when I'm... Having the conversation, it's streaming live to my YouTube channel. But as soon as the conversation is over, I make that video unlisted because I don't want it competing with the audio podcast. I don't know. Do you think that those things compete? That if you put up a video, the people who might listen to it on audio aren't going to? Be, you think it's the same audience? With my own podcast, I don't care. But with the Padverb podcast, you know, I'm getting paid to do this. It's their content. Well, that's what they want, but I'm just wondering. Uh, like... it's, it's not even what they want. It's just what I've intuitively decided I'm going to do. Um, oh, okay. I'm glad you asked that, though, because, you know, you said that when you started, when you switched to a video podcast, that had beneficial effects. It also had some, some drawbacks. But what I've noticed is that nobody, well, one person, for the most part, one or two people, respond to my audio podcasts. I get very little feedback. I can upload the you know, the audio with just a still card to video and I'll get fewer people engaging with it, but I'll get a lot more comments, a lot more feedback. And mm -hmm. I, I, you know, the money is an abstraction. It hits my bank account once a month. You know, it's, it doesn't motivate me from day to day. What motivates me from day to day is feedback. And I get very little from the audio podcast, which is why I do these ridiculous, unscripted, just, you know, least amount of effort YouTube videos. I just have a smartphone and I just jabber into it. Mm -hmm. and the algorithm doesn't like it. They don't show it. You know, the, the YouTube doesn't show it to very many people, but the people that see it, they respond to it, and I get really good feedback. I mean, people, they will put more time and effort into writing comments than I put into making the video. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I get, I, I, um, get a lot of engagement on YouTube uh, as well, a lot of people commenting, sometimes people talking to each other. Um, you used to kind of get that, for podcasts on Facebook, if you had a Facebook group or you had a, for your podcast, the people would f follow you through. Then when a podcast would come out, they would, you post it there and then people would talk about it on your Facebook group. It's sort of how I remember that happening. Yeah. Now, now Patreon is where that happens. Yeah. Patreon definitely. Um, although less there than on YouTube, because of course you have fewer people. Right. YouTube's free and people are there yeah. anyway. Yeah. Yeah, no. It, do you feel like um, you're still doing the same thing you were doing in 2006 or 2007? Or does it feel like a different kind of uh, uh, career? So it's, it's completely different in that when I first started doing the podcast, I had a day job. And the podcast was the thing that got my best energies because I was shirking on the day job. Mm -hmm. Now that the podcast is what pays the bills you know, it's kind of become the day job and I do other things to shirk. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, so I don't know if this has anything to do with the industry or anything, but just, uh, you know, your all to human mentality. Um, yeah, I, uh, do you know a guy named Joshua Slocum? You ever heard of that name? Uh, no. Well, did you mention him in the email to me recently? Uh, I might have. He, he does a pot. He actually lives in Vermont as well. 
Uh, he does a podcast called The Disaffected Podcast, and he is super professional about every aspect of it. Like, you know, he's doing it. It's a video podcast. Uh, he's got a really nice studio setup. He's got a, you know, an, another person who's the producer and the technician engineer, you know, mm. and he's got a Substack. He sends out a newsletter. Um, you know, he's got audio content that's not available on YouTube. I mean, he's, he's doing it all and he has a day job. So, mm. you know, he's, he's really diligent and hitting all the points that you really need to hit to be, to break through, you know? Mm. And I, you know, I have to admit, particularly on my own stuff, it's all half-assed. <laughs> Everything is half-assed except the editing. <laughs> you know, when do you, do you when do you think you burned out on your own stuff? You know, it's kind of hard to say. I mean, I, I lost a bunch of audience when I publicly rejected doom. You know, the the whole in collapse of industrial civilization on a short timeline. I. I just don't see it happening, and the people that I see being fixated on it, it really seems to serve a strong psychological purpose for them. So, you know, I, I just came to regard it, I hate to use psychological language, but as a pathology. And uh, when I said that, a lot of people said, well, we're here for the doom, so catch you later. So my audience, uh, you know, it, it diminished considerably. Mm. But I had already... My podcasting schedule, which, you know, I did a, a show every Wednesday for a decade plus, and that production schedule had already fallen off by that time. So mm -hmm. I'm thinking like 2018, 2019 mm -hmm. is when it really started to be a grind and a drag. Mm -hmm. um, but you had already started only mostly doing patron content before then, right? When did you start only doing patron content? Uh well, I was never only doing Patreon, you know, but but paywall. But content. you did used to do a weekly uh, podcast for the public, yeah, every Wednesday. Like I would miss them, and you didn't. I mean, like, you were <laughs> yeah, always. That fell apart when I was in Vermont. Like there was a time when I was doing the weekly podcast, a weekly paywall podcast, and a weekly radio show. Right. And when I quit the radio show, I kind of quit the podcast as well. It's like. It's kind of hard to re-piece, you know, piece it back together, to re reconstruct in hindsight. Mm -hmm. But um, there's also this the, this, the tension and the social hostility and the just the fanaticism on display everywhere and cancel culture all made the idea of earning one's living by being a public figure less attractive to me. Like I, I kind of retreated behind the paywall as a sort of self-defense mechanism. Like I, I don't have mm -hmm. the patience or, or really the equanimity to deal with a lot of hate from random strangers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I remember at the time when you retreated behind the paywall, which I guess you're saying would have been around 2015, 2016. No, no later than that. Um, I, I didn't move to Vermont until early 2016. So it was probably like 2017, 2018. Like, I remember I spent the summer of 2017 in North Carolina just working a, a warehouse job, but I was still diligent about doing all the podcasting, you know, free and paywalled at that time. Okay. So I remember talking to you about it. You know, I just think of 2018 as not being that long ago, but it was four years ago, you know? <laughs> I remember when you did that and you were you're telling me at the time, like, you're doing a lot of unpaid labor. Like, you didn't respect, like, you didn't respect your own time when yeah. you were creating that public-facing podcast. I don't see it that way, mm -hmm. you know, um, 
for any of the things I do, the videos or the public po- free podcast. It's like obviously that's the content that brings in a, a paying audience. You have yep. to to do it that way. That's the model. But uh, that's that's what you told me at the time. And uh, but I now that with retrospect, I, it makes sense that you're also like running scared of the of the of the prospect of the success of becoming what you've been spending a decade <laughs> yeah suddenly suddenly the goal which seemed achievable was no longer desirable right yeah that's that's not uncommon not just because of woke culture or whatever i think that often enough people have something that's driving them that they think they want and then when they get pretty close to it or get it worst of all yeah. They find it's not what they want. It's like, so. oh shit, <laughs> I'm still not happy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. But yeah, I uh, I don't feel like I'm still doing what I started doing with diet soap. But I kind of that gives me the ability to be nostalgic for the early days of diet soap. So I feel like it's always fun to talk to you, Camo. I wonder if the Padverb audience is is uh, I mean, are the Padverb people mostly podcasters? themselves i suspect that at this point the pad verb podcast audience is largely the sea realm podcast audience uh i'm, oh. a, I'm hoping that changes as we go on but okay. um well then they know then they'll maybe be enjoying this because if they've been around long enough they might have been, remember us having had conversations in the past yes yeah and they probably don't realize how much time has passed since we last had one it's been a while <laughs> Yeah. I think you mentioned um, the January 6th silliness. Yeah. And I don't think we've talked since then, you know, until today. No, that's right. Um, what I remember about January 6th, most of all, when it actually was happening, was I was interviewing Michael Albert when I found out about the insurrection. And you know who Michael Albert is? I do not know. He was a friend of Noam Chomsky's. He used to run South End Press. He uh, was the editor of Z Magazine. Okay, um, then I, I do know who he is. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, so long-term far-left activist and radical and, you know, part of the new left. Older guy, obviously. And he was looking at it on the TV and he said, oh, yeah, it's not as big as they're claiming it is. They're overcounting. I can tell that. And he said, and it looks pretty, you know, it looks like a pretty standard protest that's gotten out of control to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think thematically. Doesn't seem, does, doesn't seem to be the end of the world from where I'm sitting. Thematically, I think maybe we're, we're drifting astray from the, the pad verb conversation, but I, I imagine people will be interested. I know somebody who was there. Mm-hmm. He did not go inside the Capitol. Uh, he saw, you know, that that was a hopeless maneuver and just likely to get one busted. And he was right. But, you know, I've been podcasting throughout, like from the the beginning of the Tea Party movement, mm-hmm. I was podcasting. So I've been watching the left and the right and their political shenanigans, uh, not just watching as a sort of disinterested observer, but, you know, with a, a reporter's mind. Mm-hmm. And the thing that had differentiated... The Tea Party, you know, which initially the, the Tea Party among their concerns was, um, you know, the malfeasance uh, of the banks around the 2008, you know, and the, the housing crisis and everything. That movement got hijacked by big money players fairly early on. But one of the defining features of their protest was always that they were orderly and peaceful. Mm-hmm. And the fact that 
this sort of alternative right movement under Trump and in our current environment, it, you know, that, that peaceful and orderly portion or that character got eroded to the point where they did something, a faction anyway, or a fraction of, of that crowd did something incredibly stupid. And to some extent, they were goaded into it. Like there were definitely provocateurs on site who were saying, you know, we got to go, we got to break into the Capitol, we, we have to enter the Capitol. And those people are free to this day. Mm-hmm. You know, they have never been arrested. How do you know that? Uh, because, because they just weren't. I mean, they're the one guy whose name I'm it's escaping me, but he's in Texas and he's got a ranch. Okay, so I'm basically asking you, do you know who these people are? Is what I was really asking. That's yeah, I, I don't have question. I don't have names at the ready, but I could you know within with ten minutes of searching online, okay, I could find yeah, the names. That's yeah, fair enough. Yeah, because um, you know, not having been there, I wouldn't be able to to even guess as to who the if there were provocateurs or who they would have been but you you had people who were there who told you about it and gave you names that you could and i i don't want to lay everything at the feet of provocateurs and say no you know the right-wing protesters are peaceful i think that over the last half decade they've lost their minds just like the left has Mm. you know i think there's definitely reciprocal radicalization going on that uh the left is you know a, a faction of the left seems to have rallied around mental illness, like just willfully embraced it. And uh, a part of the right, you know, they've rallied around a different spectrum of mental illness, but they definitely have it. The right, from my perspective, has always been really susceptible to paranoid fantasies. Yeah. And and the, the craziness on the left, you know, it's funny because Theodore Kaczynski in his manifesto in the 90s wrote about the, the craziness of the left and at the time, I didn't see it. Even though I was living and working on a college campus, I didn't see it. And now, you know, the things that he wrote in the late 80s and early 90s seems really obviously true. Like what? what give me an example of one of the things he might have said. Uh, basically, he says, if, if you find people who, you know, like white people who are excessively concerned about uh, the rights of gays and blacks and, you know, women's rights and things that... Um, you're going to find a sort of self-hatred there that, that is motivating them. They, they feel like they don't have, like they themselves are, are quite helpless and useless. And I, I'm tempted to go dig up the manifesto because his passages yeah, yeah, yeah. when he's talking about that are really on point. And my summation is, is kind of bland and, and missing, mm. you know, what the, the real incisiveness. Now you make me want to read that, you know, I, I put that well behind me. Industrial society and its future, man. It's uh, it's it's worth a revisit. It's amazing. Okay, maybe I will. And so, what I would say about January six is that, from where I'm sitting on the far left, because I consider myself to be part of the far left, um, you know, the radical left, the trouble with the insurrection, the the language around it, the way it's framed, is that it was used in, as an excuse to clamp down on civil society overall uh gave people who even like long-term civil libertarians a reason to want to curtail uh our civil liberties and it seemed there was a lot of misinformation about it um so you know like the only people who died that day were protesters um one police officer did die but i think he had a heart attack yeah he had a stroke and he died that night yeah Right. I mean, so like he was not, but the, the reporting that came out of it was that he had been bludgeoned to death by the fire extinguisher the day of, which 
it's weird, you know, weirdly specific. Um, <laughs> you know, the most believable lies are going to have uh, really specific elements, really vivid, easy to imagine <laughs> elements to them. Right. That, that's totally to be expected. Yeah. But um, I, I feel like the January 6th insurrection was, you know, obviously uh, not to be supported. The actions of the protesters and they broke into the Capitol uh, was out of line. And, uh, you know, if they were destroying property and are committing crimes, they should have been arrested for that. Sure. But to think that the, it bothered me that after the, uh, the day the, on the 7th, the airlines were barring people from flights based on what? Based on some rumor? By, based on so-called information that the people who were getting on those planes were trying to escape justice? They didn't have arrest warrants for those people. They didn't have... They were just barring anyone who they thought was associated with the, the protests. And, and that's, you know... I opposed that in the early 2000s, you know, after the attacks of September 11th. I did not uh, support the no-fly lists and putting people arbitrarily on these lists as su suspected terrorists. And I didn't support it after January 6th either when the suspected terrorists were Americans. It didn't make a difference to me. So, yeah, I, I think that uh, a lot of people who were on the so-called left lost the plot after, well, they lost the plot after 2016, but they also lost it <laughs> after <laughs> January 6th. Why? What happened in 2016? Um. <laughs> you don't have to answer that. Hey, I, I want to read something. It'll sound very familiar to you. What? Something is ending. Sublation Media is starting what? on the premise of failure might prove to be an opportunity. For more than a half decade, we've tried to convince ourselves that the left is on the rise, even as the defeats kept piling up. The world capitalist system continues to erupt into crisis after crisis, while the left stands by seemingly impotent. Not only have we failed to accrue the power needed to intervene, but we're also not sure what we want to do. Might it be that when the crisis that is capitalism closes a door, it also opens a window? Or, to put it in a less cliched and Pollyanna way, the benefit of admitting our failures will be that we will then have an opportunity to change. So, this is something that I've, I've noticed about you and also uh, Ben Burgess and, and other people that you've been associated with, is that you're clearly on the left, you identify as being on the left, you're not apologizing for being on the left. You're critical of the, the nuttier aspects of the contemporary left, but you don't make that your brand, but you're not hiding from it either. Right. Uh, it's, it seems like a delicate path to walk. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it is. Like, okay, so that, that was definitely, uh, you know, um, I was calling out the left with that salvo. But, I mean, on the, on the other hand, if we're not going to admit defeat right now, and failure right now when are we i mean you know the sanders campaign not only didn't win sanders the nomination but didn't build anything sustainable either there was no movement that came out of it there was no none of the major planks of his uh platform um were even fought for let alone enacted into law um the more radical aspects of the left that wanted to see a movement to overturn or change away from capitalism itself, um, 
you know, clearly, uh, uh, well, they basically dismantled themselves in order to support the Sanders campaign. A lot of people, a lot of organizations just, uh, you know, shut their doors and the members went into the DSA. Ah, the word I was looking for is they liquidated themselves into the DSA and into the Democratic Party. I don't think that the, the problem started with the Sanders campaign for the left, but I definitely feel as though there was this attempt to play ball with the Democratic Party and with electoral uh, capitalist politics that failed. And uh, along the way, the Marxists and the far leftists, the radical leftists, became associated with the worst government policies. We, you know, at least before 2000, let's say, 14, uh, if you were a, a socialist radical, you know, people you know, might think that you were scary in some way, but they didn't think that you were going to support the state's uh, repression of people's independent civil liberties, you know. They didn't, maybe some people did, but I mean, that wasn't what the left thought of itself, <laughs> right? And now now we have this uh, moment where we have to look at our own decisions over the last six years, say, and take stock and and try to uh, regroup. The principles and ideas of the left are not fundamentally different from the principles and ideas of what calls itself the right in America. We're all of us revolutionaries. It's just a matter of, you know, uh, some analysis. All of us born out of the American Revolution, Civil War, uh, and the struggle for liberty against arist- the aristocracy and, and struggle for independence and democracy. That's what the left is about, and it's what people who call themselves conservatives claim to be about as well. So the difference is to the, the degree to which we, we want to champion the idea of equity for all, the, the idea of liberty for all. But anyway, I'll stop there. But I, I started to defend, like, you made me feel like I had to defend the left uh, rather than, you know, explain my critique of it. Um, well, yeah, I do walk a fine line, don't I? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right now, the Democrats control the White House and both houses of Congress. That'll likely change in the fall. But yeah, for seemingly sure. they're, they're in power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a supposedly, like a socially left ideology dominates the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, you know, all the major media outlets, except for the ones that are explicitly right wing, like Fox and One American News Network and Newsmax. And yet it's, it, it seems as though the left, like the rallying cry of the left is help, help. I'm being oppressed. It's like, <laughs> dude, you've got the power. You, you are holding the power. The power is in your hands. What are you doing with it? Well, I don't consider the, the editorial staff at the New York times or the Washington post to be in any substantial way leftist, but they do. They do. They do. But, you know, look, I remember I interviewed um, uh, around 2016, right after Trump was elected. I I interviewed a guy who had been um, the head of the National Endowment for the Arts and was a friend of John Podesta's and whose name is escaping me. But he had been an email of his had been leaked from right before the election. The WikiLeaks um, uh, documents um, included an email from from him where he had said something like, uh, you know, the, we're no longer able to control the masses with our propaganda or something like that in this email. He was actually critiquing 
their own policies. It was actually saying, you know, we have to do better than just expect people to be quiescent. We have to change. We have to throw uh, them a crumb at least. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I mean, he didn't. He, yeah. I mean, he. Right. But I interviewed him and I I told him that I was a Marxist and, you know, it was for the overcoming of, of class differences. And he said, oh, yeah, I'm the same. And I was like, no, you don't get to. Don't you say that on my podcast that you're a Marxist. Mr. Friend to John Podesta, insider, NEA, no, you know, Clinton administration. You're not a Marxist. You don't believe in the same things as I do, but you want to say that in order to buffet your brand. Um, and, and basically, it's an attack on the left when people like that say that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I don't consider my, my the, 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 I mean, first of all, they're not even socially liberal, okay? They're not socially liberal. Socially liberal is libertine and free. That's what that's, that's what being social liberal is about. It's not. They're incredibly repressive people, and just watch them go at each other on Twitter. Oh yeah, they're constantly destroying <laughs> each other. So uh, it's these, particularly entertaining to watch the Washington Post editorial and writing staff just savaging each other on Twitter right now. I know. My God, <laughs> I just like they obviously need to hire some people who are older than. I guess 50. Are you 50 yet? <laughs> I'm 51. Okay. I just turned 54. Mm. I'm well into my fifties. Mm. I remember meeting with you in New York at one point and you, mm. and having a drink with you and you said, yeah, I'm 47 or 48 or something like that. I said, I can't believe it. You're so close to 50. That's shocking. <laughs> yeah. How can that be? <laughs> and now I'm 51. Yeah. Divorced. My knees hurt today. Ugh, it's awful. Yeah. That's awful. I won't even start but. listing my physical complaints there. There, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think for the Padverb podcast, at least we should um, we should steer this toward port. Okay. It, you know, if I'm looking to uh, put a bow on it and and hit some early themes, uh, decentralization seems to be the thing to talk about. And it trying to wrap in some of our our more recent conversation, the centralized media. It seems to be very unified in its messaging, and the vast majority of the people don't listen to it anymore and don't take it nearly as seriously as they did in the 80s, mm -hmm. or even in the even in the 90s. So, or even when we started podcasting. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> when we started podcasting, yeah, there was a mainstream corporate news edifice that was taken seriously, and now it's just not. I mean, mm. Fox News... They have a bigger audience than the others, and it's mostly, I think, a demographic thing. But really, if you take Tucker Carlson away, they're not particularly impressive in their reach and, and gravitas either. Mm -hmm. Like, there's, there's a huge cross-section of people from different political factions, different age cohorts who tune in to nod along to Tucker Carlson, but then they're done. You know, they're, they have nothing to do with Fox. They probably watch Carlson on, on YouTube. And so the, the Fox demographic is dying off. The CNN demographic is dying off. Basically, the people who have been taking the mainstream corporate news edifice seriously their whole lives and are just not going to stop doing so, no matter how ridiculous it gets, they tend to be, you know, my mother's age boomers. or older, even mm -hmm. older. Like my mother is silent generation. She's not even a boomer. Mm-hmm. Mm so, yeah, I mean, the decentralization, I mean, there's there's still plenty of centralized apparatuses of distributing information. It's just 
they've become so corrupt that so many people are are tuning them out that you can't help but get this ecosystem of alternatives, some of which are really going to catch on and in time probably be worth subverting by the powers that be, you know? Mm. Well, that's already happened, right? Yeah. I mean, Facebook, Twitter, um, YouTube, uh, PayPal, um, all of it is under the control of the state. Indirectly. Indirectly. As as the, the liberals of Twitter are so fond of pointing out, these are private companies. They can do whatever the hell they want. They don't have to respect your rights to free speech. There is right. no First Amendment that applies to Twitter. Right. But that's just, I just think that's obviously a, a, a not a, a good faith argument. I mean, you have to take into account the amount of pressure that was put on these private corporations that are relying on the federal government's uh, support in order to keep their model. It going. could be a good faith argument coming from a principled libertarian of many years, but coming from, you know, a vaguely liberal member of the professional managerial class, just reaching for whatever excuse suits them in the moment. Yeah. It's not good faith at all. But even for the libertarian, like you'd have to say to the libertarian, yeah, they are not, you know, the libertarian would want them to be broken up because these are monopoly powers that are, Working in conjunction with the state, um, you know, just financially they get and legislatively they they're very influential on the kinds of laws that are passed and the, the rules that apply to them. And because of that uh, uh, interpenetration between the state and the, and the big monopoly tech companies, um, it's clear that the state can exert authority over what what they will allow up to the point of when there is a war. Uh, that the U.S. state wants to take part in in some way or another, they can tell these tech companies, you will not allow dissidents to be heard on about this war. I mean, I, mean, I, I don't support the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, but I don't want to be told I can't listen to someone who does. Yeah. You know? And just because you don't support the Russian invasion doesn't mean that you automatically support sending tens of billions of dollars worth of military no, hardware. No, obviously not. <laughs> like, you know, like uh, when this started, I mean, I, I, I know this is way off of the track, but when this started, I thought to myself, you know what I did? I went and got war games down off the DVD shelf and made my 17 oh. year old kid watch war games with me. Um, because I thought like, Oh, the cold war's back. And this time it might end with a bang. You know, I, I told my oldest son, I said, listen, I've been promised global thermonuclear war since I was eight years old. <laughs> I've got that phrase committed to memory. <laughs> yeah. Rolls off the tongue. <laughs> Would you like to play a nice game of chess? No. Global thermonuclear <laughs> war. <laughs> right. So, you know, if now's the time, you know, Godspeed, I, I'm ready. Uh, you know, it would be a fitting end. So that was my cynical take at, at the time. And then it became to seem more and more uh, possible and now yeah it's a very scary time and the left is not there to intervene and which just goes back to sublation media but you know maybe a little more decentralization will help a little more independence will help independence we have two minutes and 19 seconds in which to unpack independence independence from the democratic party independence from the capitalist class if we can manage it not that doesn't mean like independence from working within the market or working within capitalist the capitalist system, but independence from the big foundations, independence from the NGOs, 
um, independence from the established left overall. And so the people who are workers, people working class, would want to self-organize to do something uh, to help redirect the path of history and the path of their lives. Um, because, look, we've, we've all watched the last 20 years. I mean, since 9-11, we've all experienced a new normal for a while now. Some of us were born after that, but we've grown up in it. Others of us, oh, remember the good old days. But nonetheless, all of us. I remember that morning quite clearly. Yeah. <laughs> it's been unreasonable and unacceptable, a failure since then. And, you know, we have not been able to do anything to intervene to, to change course. I, I want to say something else before I let you go. I know One minute and three minute, seconds. But... Go ahead. <laughs> There's a podcast that we did, a second, a section of it on the old, no, on my channel, on the Sublation Media YouTube channel, that between the two of us where we're talking about Alex Jones. Oh, wow. You and me? Yeah, the two of us from way back when, I think 2010, 2011. Oh, wow. And, and it's like edited in, my, in the style of those videos I make now, actually. Mm -hmm. It's an early example of that. And people should go and listen to it because um, I was saying the same things about the left then as I am today. Wow. I'm, I'm afraid to hear what I was saying in 2010. Well, hey, Doug Lane of Sublation Media uh, is not zero books anymore, uh, but definitely nope. still Diet Soap. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so I just listened to that conversation, the edited version, and I jotted down a few notes. First of all is the whole concept of decentralization. Uh, I definitely want to get somebody on the podcast to talk about that, probably more than one somebody, because there are various realms which can be centralized or decentralized. And as Doug pointed out, you know, one thing that Padverb is doing, and I think a variety of other services are trying to do, is to bring a little order to the chaos of the podcasting world through some level of centralization. Listening to the, the early portion of the conversation with Douglas Lane, I'm reminded of something that I already realized, but it's, it's coming into focus more clearly for me now. Just being a podcaster... I mean, unless you happen to really score big and you're one of the, the, the folks who got together and started the, the Chapo Trap House podcast, you know, which hit really big. It, it got a big audience. So the people on that podcast, you know, they can hire professionals to do the recording and the editing and all the post-production and all of that. And they can just show up and have a conversation, you know, just congregate in a studio someplace or in front of a live studio audience and have a conversation and somebody else takes care of all the rest. And, you know, they just get to be podcasters. That, that pays the rent for them. But if you're starting off on your own, you're the recording technician. You're the audio editor. You're the publicist. You're the producer. And if it's an interview-based show, then you're the host and you are the interviewer. And if it's not an interview-based show, and I've done a great many solo shows, that's a whole lot more work. I mean, then you're, then you're the script writer, even if you're working without a script, if you're just sort of going off the cuff and then polishing it up in editing, which is my modus operandi for the C-Realm Vault podcast. Point being, just putting out an audio podcast, if you're doing it by yourself, it's a lot of work. And it's a tall order to say that on top of that, you also have to write regularly and publish to Substack, and you also have to have YouTube content, which is not duplicating your, you know, your audio podcast content. That's a lot of work for one person to do. 
And, you know, if you're really motivated and really well organized and have high energy, then it's something, it's doable, but it's not really sustainable. So you either hit it big eventually, you know, big enough to, uh, to hire somebody to do some of that other, you know, other work, or you partner up with people and you get to the point where you're making enough that everybody can be compensated enough to make it worth their time, even if they're doing something which is not particularly gratifying. Like, I'm, I won't mention the name of this particular podcast because I'm going to say something, you know, fairly negative about it. But in the early days, there were a few podcasts that I listened to before I started podcasting myself that made me think, wow, here's really professional sounding stuff talking about topics which are not allowed in the corporate mainstream media in 2006. And one of those podcasts was a group of guys who got together and they would drink and they would talk about things. Sometimes they would have guests, sometimes not. Uh, and they would just talk about weird topics. I mean, topics which are not allowed on the radio or on television. And, you know, in the days before podcasts, what was there? There was books, magazines, movies, television, radio. What else was there? And I talked to some of those guys, interviewed some of them over the years, and Eventually, they stopped podcasting, and when I dug into that, it turned out that one of them, one of the four, was doing all of the post-production stuff, which is hours and hours and hours of work, and the rest of them wanted to just show up and, you know, drink whiskey and laugh and joke and, and talk about things. That's the fun part of podcasting, but you can't put all of that, you know, all of the not fun stuff on one person and expect them to do it forever for no additional compensation. It just doesn't work that way. So you need to be part of a team <laughs> or you need to be Superman or you need to, I guess what I'm coming around to is that it's probably not even worthwhile or useful to think of podcasting as a thing unto itself. I mean, it is one means of getting a message out. It is one means of presenting, you know, a, a public facing presentation, but by itself, it's not really enough particularly if you're, say, doing one hour a week. You're presenting one hour of recorded, edited, polished podcasting per week. You know, the people that you probably are aware of, they publish daily. They do live streams all the time. You know, they allow for user, real-time user engagement and participation. They publish on Substack or Medium, or they have a blog they're creating additional content on Patreon, you know, for the, the paying subscribers only. We need to either just consider the creation of a podcast as one element in the presentation of uh, a personality and a set of ideas that go with that personality, or we just need to acknowledge that if you are a podcaster, it is understood that there is also going to be live streams, there is also going to be print material, there's going to be material on YouTube, and there's going to be places where the listeners or otherwise consumers of your content can interact with one another. One thing I didn't mention in the conversation with Doug, but in the portion where we're talking about, you know, where I went through sort of a burnout period, I got kicked off of Facebook because I wasn't using my given name. You know, my Facebook account was under the name KMO. And I posted something that somebody didn't like, something about Star Trek. And that person reported me to Facebook for what they call impersonation. So Facebook wrote to me and they said, send us a copy of your ID so that they could match it to the name on my profile. Well, my, my driver's license didn't say what was on my YouTube profile. And I wrote back to them and I said, hey, uh, let me talk to a person. I'm, I'm clearly, I am KMO. This is my nom de net. This is my sobriquet. 
but it's not what's printed on my license. But, you know, if you look at my account, you can see that I am this person, you know, just, I, I need to talk to a human. Let's, let's kick this up to human judgment. And I just got the same form letter back a second time. Send us, send us a copy of your ID or we're going to delete your account. Well, I declined to send them my ID and they did delete my account. And when they delete your account, they delete all of your participation in, you know, long conversational threads, all the posts that you've ever made to different groups. And there was a Sea Realm podcast group that had over 2,000 people in it. And that was my main uh, arena for interacting with the Sea Realm podcast listening community. And when I got kicked out of that, that group kind of went to seed. I mean, it still exists. You can still post to it. But I remember a lot of my interaction with the group was acting as a moderator, not bringing the ban hammer down on people, not deleting people's posts, but just using soft human skills to try to push back against the, the incentives that social media platforms place upon people, rewarding them for argumentative, unfriendly, aggressive, and rude behavior. You know, that is the standard for platforms like Facebook or Twitter. And a lot of what I did was pushing back against that, you know, encouraging people to play nice, to try to look at things from other people's points of view. That was almost a full-time job unto itself. But I have, in, in hindsight, I recognize that that interaction with the listening community via Facebook was a lot of the, uh, the gratification that I needed to keep going. And when that went away, I tried to recreate it in other places, but the people who were participating in the Facebook group, they were Facebook-centric. And, you know, a lot of them did sign up for accounts on the platform that I moved to, which was MeWe, but not enough of them went to MeWe regularly to really sustain a community there. On the topic of uh, January 6th and the, the faults of the left, and Doug is definitely a man of the left. He's also critical of the contemporary left, but when he talks to me, you know, he, he needs to sort of fall back and defend the left. And I should just mention that, you know, Padverb, the the website, the platform, the business isn't political. Uh, it, it's not affiliated with any of the major factions here in the U.S. Or, or elsewhere. And, you know, I'm a person. I have a political point of view. Doug is a person. He has a political point of view. He, you know, his, his public persona involves articulating that point of view. But all the political stuff in this episode, that's just me and Doug, not Padverb. So I've mentioned that uh, I got much better engagement, you know, much more thoughtful feedback from people via YouTube than I have from my audio podcasts in recent years. And I've given my Padverb uh, email address at the end of each episode of the Padverb podcast. Haven't gotten any, uh, any feedback coming in via that vector. All the feedback that I've received so far has come either through my links, you know, to Padverb episodes on Patreon or Twitter or possibly via MeWe. <laughs> I don't remember exactly. And that's, that's something else that happens is that when you are advertising or, you know, posting links to your podcast in various places, you're going to get feedback coming to you about the podcast to the places where you posted it. And it all kind of gets smushed together and it's hard to remember, you know, what feedback came through what channel. So again, if you're interacting with a lot of different platforms, there is no one central platform. Well, that is decentralization to some extent, but it's also what I like to call fragmentation. And if you can bring a little centralization to a really fragmented landscape, uh, it's, it's often very helpful. Eventually, we'll have some sort of forum on the Padverb site, but it's a lot of work. <laughs> it is a lot of work to create websites, and there's no guarantee that if you build it, they will come. All right, 
that is the end. I will talk to you again in one week's time. Stay well. <laughs>